upon the way that John has been speaking and leading us through the book of Revelation all the way to this point, and as it is coming to an end here in Revelation 21 and 22, we need not now anticipate the next few minutes together that we are going to study the cubical dimensions with which we will finally be at rest. How big will my room be? How big will your room be? And will the best of us get the windows? And the rest of us get the center apartments. You notice there's a consistency of hermeneutics, that is, a consistency of interpretation that John has laid before us for 20 chapters now. He is using physical images to speak the spiritual realities again and again and again. We have always found in the history of interpretation, when we press the physical, the, the image that is given us to speak to a spiritual reality, we press that uh, physical image into direct application of a physical correspondent. We watch in the history of interpretation, we err and we err and we err and we err again. So it is we have sought consistency in our hermeneutics, in our handling of the text, that we recognize the way in which John writes is called what? The apocalypse of Jesus. Apocalyptic literature is what we're dealing with. That gives us then a set of rules that we're supposed to play by in handling it. I cannot handle it like I would handle a letter written, right? We would sure to err. We would handle apocalypse like a poem. If we were to handle apocalypse like an epistle, like to the church at Ephesus. Were we to handle each text in the New Testament the exact same method of interpretation, we will be burned in our handling of Scripture. So it is that each of us, your investment with me and mine with you, together as one congregation of the people of God, coming for a time around the Word of God, has been to labor for near year and a half, coming up upon two years for consistency, for a vision of this text. So we have seen that John uses apocalypse. He speaks in physical terms to take us there in a vision. But he is speaking of these physical things in vision of spiritual realities. So there is no need now to abandon that consistency and all of us wrangle and argue over the cube that is being described here and trying to figure out What will our rooms be like? So we know we're not going that route. Because all along we have been watching and listening to images that speak to spiritual realities. So I'd ask for that same consistency as we go through Revelation 21 with all of the stadia present. As he has been speaking, there is a theme that has kind of emerged through the book of Revelation again and again and again, and it is this unholy trinity. John has established a theme, some of us better than others, or uh, some of us have picked up on this theme that's working through the apocalypse, and this is a theme of counterfeiting. There is an unholy trinity that has been presented to us, isn't there, in the book of Revelation, It is a spiritual warfare that is taking place. And he has spoken to it in physical terms. A dragon, a beast, 
and a false prophet. Physical images for our mind to look at, wrap our mind around, of a spiritual reality standing behind these physical things we see present in the earth. There are spiritual realities that stand behind these chaotic scenes. The culture wars. The divisiveness within the church. The challenge to our perseverance. There are spiritual realities that stand between our relationship dysfunction. Spiritual realities. So to the unholy trinity, you remember the dragon? He comes onto the scene there. We see him in Revelation 12, the dragon who emerges. And he is a counterfeit to who? What right member of the true trinity does he counterfeit in his work? The father. God. He counterfeits. Recall, he originates a plan to devour the church. What member of the Trinity do we give praise, adoration, and exaltation to as that member of the great triune Godhead that originates the great plan of redemption? Who is it that we adore, give praise to, and magnify in the origination of a perfect, redeeming, and loving plan? The Father. So we watch this counterfeit God emerge, the dragon. The second counterfeit, you recall, is that of the beast who appears. The second member of that unholy trinity. The beast, you remember in chapter 13. Some of you are like, I don't remember. I have to remember. In Revelation 13, the dragon being thwarted by the woman, by God's perfect plan, he stands and he calls forth a beast, the second member of this unholy trinity. And you remember who he mirrors or is the counterfeit belonging to which rightful member of the great triunity? And that is the Son, Christ, that beast that counterfeits his image. You remember he was receiving a mortal wound, but yet... He was somehow healed and came to life. And the people worshipped him. Who is like the beast? No one can be compared to the beast. The unholy counterfeiting trinity continues from dragon to beast. And then this third member of the unholy trinity You remember our God reigns. He was Father, Son, and Spirit. That distinguishing mark of Christianity is the doctrine of the Trinity. So then comes along this beast who then empowers a false prophet. He counterfeits the Holy Spirit by performing his works, persuading the masses. The work of the Spirit persuading the people of God, drawing in the elect. They're hearing His name preached. They're being persuaded of repentance and redemption in the name of Christ alone through the true spirit of witness. But then you watch this unholy counterfeiting taking place in culture everywhere is this work of the false prophet. No! Don't listen to this testimony of this fledgling little church community. Listen to me! And you remember his work in the book of Revelation is that which seemed to be of Christ. But if we peer a little bit closer, or we perk up a little bit better on Sunday morning, we find out it doesn't pass the, pass the smell test. He's offering me counterfeit God. 
One of health, perhaps. One of wealth. One of therapy. Yet not one of redemption. Yet he is persuading how many people, by the time we look at Babylon, she is sitting upon how many people has she convinced? Has this work of the unholy convinced? Multitudes. So it is constantly a a call to you, the saints, me, together as a community, to exercise what? Discernment. For there are counterfeit gods everywhere. There are counterfeit offers calling out your name at great discounted prices. The pathway is broad, in other words. Less resistance. There are discounted rates. And they're always offering you something they cannot deliver. It is the work of the dragon through his beast, false prophet. And then there is yet another institution within the book of Revelation that counterfeits yet again. And this is the great counterfeit that we will see exposed as we see the beauty of the church. Her counterfeit is Babylon. Babylon, you recall, offers all of the glitz and the glamour She is the empire state of mind. Live your dreams. Be enthralled with the beauty. You can survive here or you can survive anywhere. Great. Give me what's mine. And yet the book of Revelation is pulling back the curtain on Babylon. And it's saying she leaves you nowhere but death. All that you've accrued will be gone in a moment. But it's tempting, isn't it? Especially to a first century church or perhaps the 21st century church. That if I quit swimming this way and I just roll over and just get going with the current, it's tempting. So the apocalypse. Look into the word of God. By faith receive. The church has a better future. Though she be pressed and crushed by every side. She has a sure foundation laid up for her in the future. In other words. Don't quit. By the power of the spirit. Keep going. This is the work of the counterfeit. She calls out to you to quit. Stop going. The message is something like this. I think we've seen, kind of putting it together across the book of Revelation. If we could sum it up, it will appeal to you this morning. It will appeal to you when you leave. It appealed to you last night. It will appeal to you each and every day. The message of the dragon, prophet, beast, In Babylon, it sounds something like this. If it is, and you recall this from earlier through the books of, uh, or through the seven letters written to the seven churches. If it is pleasurable, why not do it? To be fully um, candid with you, something that struck me deeply about this thought. Uh, for this morning, particularly to you men, uh, myself included, 
is I had a, uh, I found out, uh, I don't know what night that was that I texted you. Um, I, I found out, I, I think, Friday night about a college friend, contemporary, uh, that was in ministry. And um, he now has been arrested. A family of four children. And he's been arrested and arraigned, whatever the process is exactly, released on bond, facing a charge of 15 years in prison for an inappropriate sexual relationship with a teenager under his charge. It's different when it's somebody your age. You think that happened at your parents' church or something like that? Watch yourself. So it is that if it is pleasurable, why not do it? If it is pleasurable, this is, this is the message. Do you hear that at all to you? If it is pleasurable, why not do it? There is someone right now that has been released on bond who lost his family and indeed his life who would say to you, I trust just because it is pleasurable doesn't mean go do it. There is better things. So it is the message of the prophet would come, this false prophet, persuading the masses. If it is therapeutic, you recall to the churches early on, to the Nicolaitans and Jezebel among them, God understands. He understands. This is nourishing to you, this false relationship, this idolatrous worship. It's helping you. And God gets that. He is loving. If it is therapeutic, just do it. This is Babylon. You're all looking at me because you know this exact same message. So do I. You and I, we're talking like this right now. It's not something I'm discovering. We're together in the same fallen age, awaiting the age that is to come. And the challenge is always present. If it is therapeutic, why not do it? God understands. Perhaps the final message from the book of Revelation, you'd put it together as the message of the false beast goes out, that is the false prophet goes out, this counterfeit to the church culture of Babylon perhaps would be, if it is spiritual, why not do it? A sense of spiritual life, therapy, apart from the text of Scripture, the guiding light of God's Word, if it is somehow unto you a spiritual person, seemingly spiritual, then why not just do it? This is the the gray area that comes to confuse and to deceive. God wants this relationship for me. God wants me to flirt with my coworker. Yeah, he does. He actually wants me to be happy. 
And he knows I've married this, this woman that just keeps me from that. He wants me to be happy. I'm able to. That, 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 that weirdness that, that we're adults in here, that, that sexual tension, it's fine to be experienced. It's that bit of, that, that, uh, uh, bit of the pump of the adrenaline. It's fine. The tension, it's not fine. It's not fine. God doesn't understand. This is the call of the counterfeit gods. That this inappropriate thing is redefined in my heart now as not being any longer inappropriate. Only to wake up in a worst case scenario. This is the work of the counterfeit gods. And they've been operating through these realities of the book of Revelation. And now we're going to look at the tale of two women. The counterfeit to the church and the true church that comes in staggering beauty. It's a wonderful picture that you've had read for you. And let's mine it out for a few moments together. The first way that we can see is John has been working, as I said, about counterfeits. Here is the one. He is counterfeiting this one. This is the one that you are to love, adore, and, be, uh, and to magnify for all eternity, dragon and God. This is the false one. Here he is over here. He is the beast. He actually wants to devour. He is not bringing any kind of deliverance. Though he mirror and counterfeit Jesus Christ, the Messiah, Christ is the only one to bring redemption in his name solely will you hope and trust. And now he sets the same sense of the vision of the church coming against Babylon, who counterfeits her. You say to me to this point, I'm not sure that this is the counterfeit that's set up because he just read for us this wonderful text of scripture and I didn't see Babylon being presented anywhere in the vision of the church who is descending. I didn't see Babylon anywhere. So, awesome. It is my task this morning to help us together see how these two things are completely parallel images. It is, trust me, it is John's effort here, and hopefully I can persuade, that John's effort here is that you are diamond shopping. And you're wondering how good which one is, and then the person, John, in the apocalypse, slides out the black velvet right underneath one of them. And now in that great study of contrast you know exactly the beauty of the diamond that's being presented because you see it in perfect contrast to the black velvet that's just been slid underneath it. And I trust by the end of our time together, you'll purchase that one. By faith, you'll lay hold of that. It is stunning. In great contrast. How fitting, right? Black velvet of Babylon. Look at how he sets this contrast up with me. By We're going to kind of look at just a couple passages between chapter 17 and chapter 21 where we're located. The first, there are five things that set the contrast, or uh, these five things is John sliding out the black velvet for you to see the beauty of the church burn so brightly against the blackness of Babylon. The first point is 21 verse 9. Look at verse 9 with me just briefly for a second. Then came, this is John, then came out one of, and as a good student, really key in on verse 9, one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full 
of the seven last plagues. So this is the one who came. John details the one who's delivering the message. It is one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls full of the seven last plagues. And he is the one speaking. Look over in chapter 17. This is, again, John sliding the black velvet out for us to see the beauty of the diamond that emerges. See it in great contrast. These two visions are parallel to one another. Chapter 17, verse 1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came out and said to me, so far, step one, the structure is already being set up. The same messenger is coming to present the truth of the two visions, the tale of two women, Babylon being presented and the church triumphant being presented, and they're in contrast to one another. The first way we know we're supposed to contrast and compare is because the same angel is bringing the same word to John. So far, just the messenger is the same. But yet, look at how this contrast continues. Number two, the command is exactly the same. Look in uh, the rest of verse 1 of 17. Come, I will show you. So it is the same command, the same direction of the vision. Look in verse 9 of 21. Come, same message, by the same messenger, come, and I will show you. So here comes the work of disclosure, the same servant with the same command. Look at how the contrast continues to be set up against one another. Number three, John is relocated in both visions. Come and I will show you. If you're there in chapter 21, verse 9, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he, notice there in verse 10, he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and he showed me the holy city Jerusalem. Look in chapter 17. John is relocated in the same vision also of 17, verse 3. I'll read 2. Excuse me, we'll just continue with verse 2 with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on the earth have become drunk. Do you remember? That was the message. If it's pleasurable, why not do it? So it is their end is drunkenness with sexual immorality. Overflowing abomination. They heard the message of the false prophet, and they bought it. Verse 3, and he carried me away. Here is the third piece, that relocation of John in both visions is structurally the same. And that is why we're looking at a diamond with this black velvet underneath. He carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names. And it had seven heads and ten horns. So this point of exchange. He moves them from one location to another location for what purpose in this vision? Same angel, same command, and he relocates him in both of the parallel visions. Why? Enhanced perspective. He goes to a high mountain to see the beauty of the church triumphant, and he goes to a wilderness to gaze upon this beast that is bloody with the blood of the saints. They're structurally the same, so that you would see the beauty of the one stand out against the black evil of the other, and you would at the end of these two parallel visions say, by grace, I want that one. 
there is one more piece of the parallel nature of the two visions working in tandem, and that is the conclusions to the vision are the same. I hope to draw your heart to this reality. Look at 19 verse 9. The conclusion, now he's concluding the vision he began in chapter 17. So he went from 17 and 18 and into 19. And at the end of the vision, it is the same conclusion right here about the truth of Babylon. Look in verse 9. What is its conclusion? I'm just asking you, the saints, please. I know I never do that, so you're all thinking he's about to answer his own question. He always questions and answers himself Not this time. You know, I can't handle awkward pauses so that within two more seconds, I will answer it for you. What is the end of the vision regarding Babylon being destroyed? Very last phrase of verse 9. These are the true words of God. This is true. Do you by faith embrace that? This is is true. That little adrenaline pump that you get from that awkward and ungodly exchange. Its end is death for you. This is true. The inappropriateness, it's wrong. These are the true words of God. doesn't concede because he understands. The internet, I've said it one million times, and I'll say it probably a million more, for my own soul's benefit, unto you as well. Watch yourself. These are the true words of God. That's the end of the vision with Babylon. And you continue, look at the end of the beauty of the church that is being revealed. The same structural conclusion in verse 6 of chapter 22. That's where we'll end the vision of the church. Not this morning, but at the end of John's vision of the church triumphant. Look in verse 6. And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. Both visions structurally set in contrast to one another. Both are true. Do you see lies before you, by grace, the call to repentance and belief? Both pathways present. Babylon, the counterfeit, and the true church redeemed by Christ. Their ends, as disclosed in these texts, are true. Here you stand. Oh, it's different for me. It's okay for me to have. Is it? Proverbs. Can a man carry hot coals in his chest and not be burned? Is it different for you? No, men, it isn't. 
So we see that the conclusion is the same. God's word will prevail in every sense. And it will be proven absolutely true. The very last structural comment where we know that this is the black velvet to be compared to the burning glow of the beautiful diamond of the church purchased with the blood of Christ is John acts the same way at the end of both visions. Do you remember at the end of the vision back there in chapter 19, look at how he records even his own comment of what he did in verse 10 at the end of chapter 19, at the closing of the vision that he saw, he falls down at the feet of him, the angel who disclosed the truth, and he worships. And the angel says the same thing, stop doing that. I am a fellow servant. You And your brothers. Who are the servants, Redeemer? Who are they this morning that would be a servant of the Lord? He who trusts and holds to the testimony of Jesus. That is a true servant. Not listening to the lie of Babylon. But when he hears it, and even when he does indulge it. None of us are perfect. Beset by many weaknesses. What does the servant do? He returns in repentance and faith. He returns to the testimony of Jesus in the gospel. This is the mark of the servant. It's the same mark at the end of chapter 22. John falls down yet again in the exact same structures with which the content is being taught to us. The structure is the same. The structural point is to put them in contrast. John does the same thing at the end of this one. He falls down and offers worship and the angel says the same thing. Don't do that. It's in chapter 22. I see some of you looking so I don't want to leave you in the dark. It is chapter 22, verse 8 and 9, where we see the final completion to the rough structure where the content is being exposed to us. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and I saw, I fell down and I worshipped at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, with all. All those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. This is the servant. He who keeps the content of this book. Who loves the Lord. Not who's perfect in keeping this book. But the servant who returns to the trustworthy word of Jesus Christ. Again and again and again. And by grace goes forward. Not as a man unchanged. Though he hear the word, he is not a doer. Who looks his face in the mirror, James says, and he forgets what he saw. No, a servant. One who looked and saw. And by grace went forward, remembering who he is before the Lord, relying upon the grace of the word he heard. Hear the word of the Lord. It is trustworthy and true. He is the servant who by grace keeps it. Well, if it's spiritual, it's fine. No, it's not. What do we even mean by spiritual? Of the spirit? Are we talking about something that makes us feel better? It's not fine. 
It needs to be clearly biblically understood. God's word is our authority. Don't wait for the energy to swoosh in in the window in spring and move you unto godliness. The servant turns to the word. So if it is biblical, why not do it? Let us be servants of the Lord in Babylon. This is the point of the contrast with Babylon and the other woman. What is it that the other woman is? Who is the other woman? The rightful and true bride. Not the dragon's prostitute. but the faithful bride of the Lamb. This is the contrast. Look in verse 9 of 21. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, and he spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Do you see the contrast of wife and bride in its communicative effect versus a prostitute from the dragon? Let the image rest with you. This is the contrast. The church is a bride belonging to her husband. She doesn't play the prostitute. She doesn't go about selling off her body, indulging in every form of idolatry. If it's pleasurable, why not do it? Because you're the bride. You belong to another. That's why. You've been bought with a price. That's why. You're the wife of the lamb you're not the dragon's prostitute he redeemed you not with perishable things like gold and silver but with the precious blood of the lamb as a lamb without spot or wrinkle he took you he purchased you So glorify God in your body. You're the wife, the bride, not a prostitute. This is the contrast between the church and Babylon. There is yet the contrast continues. There is a contrast between her lasting and enduring beauty for all of eternity That is to give you hope for your future and encourage you right now, Redeemer Community Church, to exercise discernment in the present. You cannot just be a prostitute and have future hope. That's not how it works. By grace, be the bride, a faithful wife. By practicing discernment now, bolstering your hope in the future. Notice how he does that. Just quickly look over in chapter 17 how he draws the contrast even further according to the vision. In chapter 17, I read for you verse 4. 
Here is this prostitute and the beast working in tandem, this ungodly work of counterfeiting the church. Verse 4, the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup. Do you, excuse me, see all the images present? Her beauty, it is but a moment of cheap thrills, glitz and glamour, as we said a little bit of va-va, Boom! In her moves. And the suspecting prey? He who thinks it's fine, just for a moment. I remember with Adrienne uh, last week, as you know, we had our daughter Charlotte. Better yet, let's give credit where credit is due. Adrienne had um, Charlotte. Praise the Lord. And, and, and at one point, she did uh, get the epidural. Ladies, more than men, perhaps know, but you're all smart guys. Um, and I remember at one point, the, the, um, there, there was a need for a, a bit more strength. And there's a little thing hanging from the packet, and it's like a little clicker button. And you just click it, and it kind of spritzes a little bit more intensity into the line for a moment. Making everyone feel a little bit better, dad included. And just as neat, that little clicker works for everybody. Me, her, the whole situation. Oh, I need more. Sounds good. I need more. I need a distance here. I need to calm down. Let's click it a few more times. It's a moment of spritzing. That little bit of the clicker just gives you that feel. Just, okay, we pass that when you're looking at the thing that's printing out all the sheets that the doctors just come in and stare at a little bit and then walk out and you're like, say something. Say something's happening. Have a child here. Let us go home. And so they just see and, yep, it's all the same. And they go. So you're just, you're hoping each time that thing ramps way up here, you're just clicking. You know, here is a moment of intensity. Just click it and make it feel better. So it is, right? In the intensity of the moment, in the call to exercise discernment, in the call to stand in integrity before your wife, before your family, before your church family, before your employer. Intensity. Sexual purity. We can feel like, I'm just going to... Just give in. Just, just, I need some medicine for a moment. I just need, just need a, little, a little inappropriate interaction here because I'm feeling really discouraged. God, God understands. I'm just going to go ahead and exercise that, that freedom. Just because it, it's my... It's momentary. It's momentary. It leads you to death. As goes Adri, so goes the clicker. You need more. Dad needs more. Men need more. I, 
I can speak perhaps better to the man side of things than I can to the women, so I trust by grace you're applying it. It's not just a moment and it's over. It's a pathway that is leading and it is momentary. She has purple and scarlet. She appears adorned with beauty and jewels, but they take wings and fly away. Right when you've risked everything to have her. Did you notice that she presents, again, the prostitute? Not a lot of prostitutes typically carry around golden chalices. It's an interesting image. Do you notice how she appears to you? Perhaps not as you would say, oh, I'm not that attractive to prostitutes, really, me. You're missing the image. She doesn't come to you, perhaps, in a way that's unattractive to you. She comes to you just the way you need her to appear. And in that golden chalice, did you notice its contents? It's full. Great. Let's drink and be merry. Full of what? Get past the golden chalice, in other words. Get past the facade and recognize its contents. It's full, yes, of abominations. Its end is death. That image you're viewing, that golden chalice, get past the image. Tear it down, look behind it, John says, and you're going to see death. You're going to see abomination. Every form of wickedness. Everything that is not a part of the bride. And he who practices such doesn't belong to the bride. That's the end of the vision of chapter 21. They're not there. Final, as we kind of just briefly look here at the fullness of the beauty of the church, look in chapter 21, comparing to the momentary glamour of Babylon, that momentary spritz and feel, it's not lasting and enduring. It is, believer, it is momentary. Now look at the beauty of the church in great contrast, beginning in verse 10. And he carried him away in a great spirit, uh, uh, in the spirit, to a great high mountain, and he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem. It was coming down out of heaven from God, and it was having the glory of God. Its radiance is like a most rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. I want to draw your attention to the lasting beauty and then show you who it belongs to. Look at verse 11. It has, this, this bride, this wife of the Lamb, she has the glory of God. Do you see? Now keep it in contrast to the momentary clicks on the internet, to the adrenaline pup of inappropriate, sexually tense moments and interactions, to that constant purchasing to fill that void where I'm buying out of control materialism. How we all need to keep an eye because look at the lasting beauty of verse 11. It has the very glory of God. Not cheap velvet. Glory of God. Lasting. 
everlasting beyond the momentary pump. It's radiating. Do you see the second portion there of verse 11? It's radiance. That is, what is it radiating? The very glory of God. You all live in thousand-year-old homes here in the city of Pittsburgh, right? They're all leaning. Every door needs to be cut ten times. We all know many of them have radiators. What do they do? Well, they emanate, give off that which is within the fullness thereof, the water that's coursing through them, and they're letting off that in heat. It's a radiator. It's radiating. Do you see the beauty of that picture for the church, not the prostitute? It's radiating the very glory of God. He is in her midst, and she is so beautiful. The source of her very life, the source of her beauty, is that God is in her midst, and she is radiating you me, the church triumphant. We're radiating the very glory of God. We are Moses who came down with our faces burning bright. Only now we don't have to hide it. It's not that we can't look upon it. In the age that is to come, it will radiate from us in a beauty that we cannot even imagine. Because God is in our midst. Please don't follow a cheap, momentary thrill with a prostitute. Don't stay up every night worrying about your money. That we could accrue more, get more, and have more. Be wise. That is, don't burn all your money either. But in all things, by faith, love the Lord in all categories. That he would radiate his glory in the church he has purchased for all eternity. Hallelujah. What a Savior. This is the contrast that stands before you right now. Those areas where we have heard the call of the counterfeits and we have surrendered ground. I'm asking you men, women, together, let us repent of our sins. Let us look upon the true servant, he who keeps the word and the testimony of Jesus Christ. And return by faith. In the grace he has supplied us as the vine. Remember last week? The vine empowering the branches. Give up that sin that so easily entangles. It belongs to a prostitute. You're a wife. You're a wife. Be faithful to your husband. He abides within you. Let us pray.